Good morning, everybody. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Sean. I'm on staff here along with my wife. We direct the youth ministry. Um, a few years ago, my wife and I celebrated our second anniversary. Um, actually, it's been more than a few years now. But uh, for that anniversary, uh, we went to St. Petersburg, Florida. I was in seminary at the time in Orlando, uh, and we, we decided to go to St. Petersburg. They were having this crazy day where everything, uh, art exhibits, uh, street side vendors, everything was free to get into. Um, of course, the hope, I think, was that you would then buy and consume and, and spend money. Uh, we were savvy and did not. Uh, but we did go to uh, the Salvador Dali Museum in St. Petersburg. And for those of you who are not familiar with Salvador Dali, he was an artist, kind of crazy, a painter. Uh, if you've ever seen, there's a painting in the desert and there are melted clocks hanging over things. That's Salvador Dali. Uh, we went to a museum that had apparently the largest collection of his works in the world. Uh, and, and we were looking at all of these amazing paintings by Dali, these portraits, and in, in, inevitably what would happen as we would go to each painting is we would be standing a, a ways back just looking at this beautiful, intricate, sometimes undiscernible uh, painting by Dali. And, and there would be, you know, four or five other people with us. And then somebody, uh, usually a gentleman, usually a little bit older, I don't know why, uh, would come and walk up to the painting and, and literally just be like this in front of the painting. And initially, you know, Melissa would kind of elbow me and look, and I'd look back, I don't know, we'd look around, everybody else is trying to figure it out too. My first thought is, who does this guy think he is? He's not glass, we can't see through him. He's standing right in front of the painting. Uh, but the more that I watch him, the more that Melissa and I become confused because the painting is literally, you know, and this, and this guy is right here. And he's just looking, wow, this is amazing. The, the, the moisture in his breath is beginning to accumulate uh, on the painting. Um, and, and from the back, we can see him shake, and we know that he's starting to, to weep. Uh, the moisture in his eyes is beginning to pour down his cheeks, and he's just looking, and, and I'm sure in amazement, at these three brush strokes, and there's this entire painting in front of him, and, you know, we're starting to get more and more frustrated that there's this painting with a large human head uh, right in the bottom third of it, uh, but he's looking, he's just amazed, and then he just walks off to the next painting, same deal, uh, and we're, we're standing back looking at this, and it's just confusing, because there's this whole big, beautiful painting that I assume Dolly intended to be viewed, uh, and this guy is right up here on the brush stroke. And, and maybe he was an art scholar. I, I really don't know. It's possible. I doubt it, though, because art scholars tend to look at the whole painting as well as just the brush strokes. Uh, but this guy was just really intent on seeing that, that, that tiniest portion of the painting. Uh, and... and I realize that our approach to the Bible and our approach to 
God's work in history is a lot like that. Uh, we equate spirituality uh, to going deep into Scripture, which is a good thing, but we equate going deep into Scripture with looking at the brushstroke, and sometimes we forget to step back and see this entire portrait that God has painted. Uh, the best example I can think of uh, actually uh, happened while we were in India. We were on a short-term mission trip there, and we met a group from, I think it was Arizona, and they were also on a short-term mission trip, and, and what they were doing was working with some of the orphans who had been raised up, uh, sent through school, and were now in the Bible college that the orphanage ran, preparing to go plant churches uh, in, all throughout India, and he was teaching Greek, and I, I, you know, began to talk to him at the time. I was in seminary. It's just interesting. Hey, you know, where'd you go to seminary? Oh, I didn't. That's fine. You don't have to go to seminary. You know, where'd you learn Greek? Oh, I taught myself. And, you know, at this point, I realized I'm going to have to start praying that God would protect my heart um, from arrogance and just all of these things, you know. And we, we just, we began to have a conversation. And he talked about how he was leading a Bible study at his church back home uh, in a series through Romans, and actually, I think he was preaching for the church through Romans. And he said, yeah, uh, we've been going through Romans now for four months, and we've gotten through two verses. And he, he, he wore it like he was proud of this fact. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's good. It's good to go deep into there. But, but seriously, if you preach only two verses at a time through Romans, it's going to— your congregation is going to die before you finish it, let alone get to another book. And what you're forgetting is that Romans, just like Acts, falls into a greater picture. Uh, the entire redemptive story of uh, uh, the entire story of what God is doing through Jesus for his people on earth. Uh, and, and we can fall into that trap as well. And, and I'm telling you this because the passage that we are reading is quite long. And so what we're going to do, rather than go through each story, there are three stories and several sub-stories that we could talk about. Rather than going through them specifically, we're going to look at the broader picture. And the broader picture is what God is doing in redemptive history at this time, what these stories point to. You can, however, go deeper if you're in a home group. Uh, the home groups will dig deeper into this text, and I'm going to use this as a time to encourage you to go to home groups. Uh, coming to Grace uh, is, is good. Uh, if, if you've signed up for Grace Connection class, that's awesome. Uh, but if you do those things and you're not involved in a home group, uh, it's kind of like taking a brochure to Hoboken, New Jersey. Uh, Hoboken is, is on on uh, the Hudson, on the shore, you have a beautiful picture of New York City. You, you, see, uh, you see the skyline. It is gorgeous. It's like going there, setting up a picnic, uh, and looking at your brochure. Oh, the Empire State Building. Oh, Statue of Liberty. That's great. And then folding it up and going home and telling everybody, yeah, I go to New York. You know, that, that's, it's not really the case. In order to say you've been to New York... There's something about that first time that you come out of the subway tunnel and the buildings just hit you. You realize that somehow you are in a different world and everything is 
really, really hot. You, you just are bombarded by concrete and, and smell and people and, and everything that is New York. And until you've experienced that, you haven't experienced New York. And home groups are a lot like that. Um, until you experience home groups, you have not experienced Grace Community Church. You haven't bumped into the people. You haven't smelled Grace Community Church. You you have not taken part in what God is doing here. Um, Please, please find a home group that's close to you and be a part of it. You'll dig deeper into this text. Um, With that being said, we do have a lot of text uh, to go over. And so let's go ahead and pray and get to work. Father, you're good. You're more than good. And it's, it's impossible to describe how awesome what you have done throughout the entire course of history is. The way that you've orchestrated every event, the complexity and the precision of every brush stroke uh, that contributes to this great painting of Christ redeeming the world. I pray, God, that we would stand in awe of what you've done as we come to this text. May your spirit illumine our hearts, open our minds so that we might receive you. Amen. All right, go ahead and turn uh, to Acts chapter 9. And while we go there, I just want to tell you the greater theme of this. I'm just, we're going to get it out of the way right up front. Uh, the, the greater theme is that Christ's covenant is a better covenant than the old covenant. Uh, plain and simple, we're looking at a better covenant. Uh, now, it's really important before we even jump fully in that you understand what a covenant is because we have a very... Uh, Western post-enlightenment understanding of a covenant. And so we kind of just think that it's a promise, a really strong promise. Uh, But that's not the case biblically. Uh, Covenants first appear, as you know, in Genesis. uh, And and it appears with Abraham as the first spoken outright, uh, well, really the second, but spoken outright covenant of this kind in the Bible, and Abraham took place in us of the Chaldeans uh, in ancient near, in the ancient Near East. And so we need to understand what an ancient Near Eastern understanding of a covenant is. And, and a covenant is more than just a promise. It's a promise, uh, a contract between a king and then his vassal, his lesser king. And this contract cannot be broken. In fact, there was this whole ceremony where the two kings, usually after a war, would come to make peace. The greater king showing mercy on the lesser king. They would take livestock, some from both parties, they would split it in half, and they would walk through the blood and the the split corpses of, of the cows and whatever it is. And then at the end, they would join hands, they would make their covenant, and they would say, if one of us should break it, may what happened to these animals happen to us. Um, It is a lifelong binding contract. 
And usually within a covenant, almost always within a covenant, there were terms. Uh, And usually the greater king would lay down the terms. If you do these things and obey and keep the covenant, then you will receive my blessing, be it security, land, livestock, prosperity. If you, keep, if you obey and keep the covenant, you will be blessed. And if you disobey, I'll make you like these animals. And, and that, that's how it worked. And, and that was covenant. And so God entered into covenant with his people. Uh, and we see that happen with Moses. Uh, we see that happen before that even with Abraham. And now we're looking at Christ uh, and seeing a new covenant through Christ, which we're going to see is a much better covenant. And that is the greater picture of what's happening really in Acts, um, but in, in these verses that we're looking at. So go ahead uh, and turn to chapter 9. We're not going to stand for the reading. It's 60-something verses. In fact, I'm not even going to read it all at once. Uh, we're just going to work through uh, and see, see what God has done. Just to catch you up on where we are, uh, Acts starts out with Jesus uh, ascending into heaven, giving his Holy Spirit, Peter preaching this incredible sermon at Pentecost, and the church advancing like crazy. Then all of a sudden we stop hearing about Peter, and it moves into the beginning of the Saul-Paul saga. Uh, and in the Saul-Paul saga, we see the, the uh, prologue is that Stephen is, is martyred and Saul is there. And then God saves Saul miraculously uh, and against really, really any logic and reason that we would use. And then we see Saul begins to, begins to proclaim the gospel and the church again is growing like crazy. And so then we pick up with Peter and we're going to be looking in verse 32. And we see that Peter went here and there among them all, among all the saints, among all the believers. He came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Just, just so you know, the upper room is probably where the church gathered. Um, so they laid her in the gathering place of the saints. Since Lydda was near Joppa, The disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turned to the body. He said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and gave her his hand. And raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. And one thing that I want us to see here this sounds really familiar. Uh, We see the healing of a paralytic. 
and we see the revivification of a saint, of a, of, of a woman who believed in Jesus in Tabitha. And if this sounds a lot like Jesus' ministry in John 5, uh, it should. Because if you recall, there was a man who was paralyzed, had been paralyzed for some long unknown time. What that means is that this wasn't something that was going away. And Jesus came and healed the man. And then if you remember in John 11, Lazarus dies, and he's been dead for a few days before Jesus comes back. And Mary and Martha, Lazarus's brothers, are weeping. Uh, they come to Jesus. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He raises Lazarus up. And now, some years later, Peter is healing paralytics, raising the dead just like Jesus. And we are intended, we are supposed to remember that this is not the act of Peter. These are not the acts of the apostles, but rather the acts of Jesus through the apostles. Peter even says it to Aeneas, Jesus has healed you. Rise. These are the works of Jesus we're seeing. The, the, the miracles, the works of Jesus continue. And these miracles stand in direct contrast to the Old Covenant or Old Testament miracles. So let's for a second just compare Old Testament, Old Covenant miracles versus New Covenant miracles. And see what we see. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, in Genesis, God pours out fire and judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. However, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, uh, the Spirit of God is poured out on Jesus upon his baptism and poured out on the believers on the day of Pentecost. Uh, and then when the gospel goes even further from the Jews to the Samaritans, and then again here in Acts 10, when the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Uh, also, uh, in the Old Covenant, we see that, and you remember this, the ten plagues, these are all miracles. These are all miracles proclaiming that God's people are his and announcing the freedom that is about to come for God's people. Uh, and so Moses turns water to blood, which brings death. You can't drink blood and be refreshed. The idea of bathing in blood is sickening. Moses turning water into blood was not like, it wasn't, it wasn't a good thing for Egypt. There was not rejoicing in the land. Nobody was happy and raising their glass, you know. However, Jesus turns water into wine. And wine is good. He's signifying, of course, his blood. Uh, we see wine come again with communion. But wine is good. It benefits the people who partake of it, especially at the party that Jesus was at. Uh, and so unlike Moses who turned water into blood, Jesus turns water into wine. Also, Moses, by the power of God, uh, summons locusts. And locusts eat all the grains. And also another plague, uh, Moses... Uh, raises his staff, and all the livestock in the land die. Uh, but Jesus is not like Moses. Jesus is much better than Moses. Jesus' covenant is much better than uh, the articulation of the covenant through Moses. And Jesus instead feeds 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. 
And then finally, and perhaps the greatest of, of the miracles, the greatest of the plagues in the, in the Exodus story uh, is the Passover plague where God pours judgment on the people of Egypt by taking their firstborn sons. Not just the people. Every living thing that was not covered by the blood of the Lamb. However, Jesus heals. Jesus brings life. Jesus uh, raises people temporarily from the dead. And then ultimately, he raises people eternally from the dead. And if we don't see anything else, um, let's see that the Old Covenant miracles only, almost exclusively, bring death. But Christ, the new covenant, brings life. The new covenant is, is, is it's better. It's just better. Let's keep moving on. Let's look at the next story. Uh, and this begins in Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A centurion was a Roman soldier who ruled, uh, who, who was in charge of a hundred other Roman soldiers. A cohort was six centurions in their army. So 600 men, six centurions. That's a cohort. Uh, the fact that it's the Italian cohort lets you know that he is a Gentile. Uh, and this is, this is big. Um, not only is he a Gentile, the Bible goes on to say he's a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he, clear, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, as he stared at him in terror, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day... As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, 
Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded, been commanded by the Lord. There's a lot there, a whole lot. Two visions, two visions that are repeated three times. Uh, One we know is repeated because the Bible says this happened three more times. Uh, And one we hear repeated again and again. And the point that Luke (laughs) is making is that these visions are important. First, we hear of Cornelius, a Gentile whose prayers are answered and heard by the Lord. And then we see Peter, a Jew, a Christian believing Jew. And he gets this vision from God. And and Jesus says to Peter, eat, kill and eat. A blanket comes down from heaven full of reptiles, pigs, unclean animals, birds of the air, uh, everything that is delicious, bacon. I mean, everything is on... Everything is on this blanket, and we've heard a lot about this. Um, And God says to Peter, kill and eat. Now, being the Gentile that I am, that would not, he wouldn't have had to say it twice. Um, However, Peter is still a Jew at heart. And what it's important to see is that Peter is still observing and obeying the customs and the laws of the old covenant. He's in Christ, but he still thinks 
that the things of the old covenant can defile him or that somehow what is from the outside can make you unclean. And Peter needs to repent because Jesus is telling him, what I make clean, you can't call unclean. It's not just the food that Jesus is talking about, but Peter. Jesus is saying, Peter, I made you clean. You cannot break the law and thus be unclean. As well as, I'm making this food clean. Eat it. Peter has to repent of looking for his salvation and his righteousness in not something other than Christ, but something along with Christ. And that, that is where we tend to fall short as Christians. A lot of us in this room don't look to things other than Christ. It, it, we're, obviously, we're not looking to money and saying, money saves us. Most people in this room might not say that. Some might. I don't know. If you would say money would save you, then I would say repent and trust Jesus. But what we're more likely to do is say, Jesus saves us and how I use my money keeps me righteous. And I would say to you, repent. Jesus is your righteousness. Jesus makes you clean. Some of you would say, Jesus saves me, but if I don't come to church every week, I'm unclean. I'm not a righteous and good Christian. And, and you may not say that with your words, but the way that you live shows it. I fight this all the time because I know that Jesus saves me, but I think that uh, somehow my work in the ministry um, is necessary for me to have some sort of right standing with God. That if I fail at my work from the pulpit or, or with the youth, um, that somehow I'm, I'm letting God down to a point where he can't even count me righteous. Uh, and so I spend hours and hours fretting about things. Um, I will neglect my family sometimes for the sake of making sure that everything is perfect or at least by my estimations, perfect. Um, because I, I genuinely, I genuinely think that if I, if, I don't, if I don't get these points right and if I don't rightly communicate um, this message, uh, that somehow I will have let Jesus down, and in some way, um, I will be less righteous. Uh, even things that are bad and sinful, uh, we think, if I can just control this, if I can just control this bad habit, or if I can just rein in this sin, if I can just stop doing it, then I'll be a better Christian, I'll be more 
connected to God, and, and, and in some senses that's true, uh, but in other senses we think that, oh, because I'm not committing this sin anymore, I must be also more righteous, and, and it's just not the case, because Jesus makes you clean. Jesus declares you righteous, and what Jesus declares clean and righteous, nothing can make unclean and righteous, because it's not your righteousness. It's not your obedience. It's not your works. It's not your adherence to the law. It's Christ's righteousness. And when Jesus says you are righteous, what he's saying is, here, take my righteousness, and I'll take your curse. (laughs) You cannot do anything to take away from Jesus' righteousness, just like Peter could not eat that food and somehow make himself unclean. What God has called clean, let no man call common or unclean. And Peter Peter should have recognized this because Peter understood the priesthood of Jesus. And later we see in Hebrews uh, chapter 7, Verse 12, talking about Christ who is our great high priest, which we all like to talk about. Um, We like the idea of Christ who intercedes on our behalf, who makes a sacrifice for us so that our sins can be forgiven. But what we forget is what Hebrews 7 says in verse 12, that if there's a new priesthood, then there's a new law. With the passing of the Levitical priesthood comes the passing of the law. We are not bound to those things in the same way. And so we ought to look at how uh, the old covenant law stands with the new covenant law. First thing we see is that the old covenant law is full of regulations on food and drink. Clean versus unclean, but, but in the new covenant law, there's, there's freedom in Christ. Within moderation, there's freedom. The old covenant law is full of ceremonial washings and rituals like circumcision uh, and feasts and sacrifices that, that cleanse, that, that redeem, that give life. But the new covenant law, there's life in Christ. That simple. Trust in Christ you're clean. The old covenant law demanded daily and yearly sacrifices because all of those regulations about food and all of those ceremonial washings, rituals, feasts, they couldn't save you. And so you had to keep going back and keep making sacrifices because the very next day you became unclean because we're sinful people. But Christ died once for all. And when the Bible says that, it's not talking about people. It's talking about all time. He died once for all time. He doesn't have to do it again. Trust in Jesus. That's how powerful his blood is. That's how perfect his sacrifice is that he died once and you're clean. And once you're clean, you can't be made unclean again. Trust in Jesus. And then finally, we move into the story, and we get really to the heart of it. Peter opened his mouth, this is verse 34, and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As, and as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, 
He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him might receive forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. For the first time, the fullness of the Spirit and the gospel is poured out on the Gentiles. And it is beautiful because all the people of the circumcision, all the Jews, all the people of the law are amazed that their God is now moving among those who are no longer unclean, the Gentiles. And, and we see a basic order in this whole saga, in this whole story, uh, starting with Peter healing Aeneas, going all the way through the Gentiles receiving the gospel. Uh, and, and, and the basic order uh, of evangelistic events that occur is this. We see signs of the kingdom. Peter heals Aeneas, raises Tabitha from the dead, just like Jesus presented signs of the kingdom, healing, uh, raising from the dead, feeding, caring for the poor. Uh, the church did this. They cared for the poor and the widows. We are called to do this. When I say signs of the kingdom, I mean foreshadows, foretastes of the kingdom that is coming. We feed uh, even though people get hungry again because there's a kingdom coming where there will be no hunger for those who are in Christ. We heal and, and, and we, we pray for the sick, uh, not because if we heal them now, they will, they will live forever, but rather because there's a kingdom coming uh, where cancer has no place, where sickness and death have no place. There's a kingdom coming where we won't have to pray for children who are sick. Callie will be healed fully, where Elise will be healed fully. This is a great thing, and we proclaim this kingdom with the signs that we do. This is why we feed the poor, because in Christ there is no poverty, and there never will be. This is why we take up a benevolence offering. We're doing it today. You can participate in that. You can perform a sign of the kingdom that is coming. 
and proclaim the goodness of Jesus. But the signs of the kingdom never come alone. They are always accompanied with the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter proclaims that gospel, and that gospel proclamation is followed by belief in what a beautiful thing it is when an unbeliever believes in Jesus. And we are called to perform those signs of the kingdom, but each one of you is called to proclaim the gospel so that people might believe and thus be filled with the Spirit. Uh, (laughs) And then people are baptized, and this is the order. Uh, Baptism does not lead to salvation. It is a product of salvation, so to speak. It is a sign of those who are entering into the covenant to be baptized uh, is, is a beautiful, beautiful thing, but it's not a saving thing. Belief in Jesus saves. And so we see that the old covenant is, is inferior to the new covenant, even in its recipients. The old covenant is highly exclusive, and the new covenant is utterly inclusive in that the covenant blessings are no longer just for the Jews, but for those from all nations who believe who repent and turn to Jesus. The covenant sign in the, uh, for the old covenant, circumcision, was only performed on males, clearly. However, the new covenant sign, baptism, is for all who believe. If you've not been baptized, what are you waiting for? Male, female, it's for all. And then the Spirit uh, is poured out typically on one person at a time and for a short time in the Old Covenant. However, in the New Covenant, all believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are filled. You are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do good works, to do good deeds, and to proclaim the good news of the coming kingdom in Jesus Christ to all. We are the children of a better covenant. Do not return to the old way of doing things to dependency on works and yourself. Rather, trust in Jesus. Love like Jesus loved. Proclaim the good news that he proclaimed of his death, his burial, his resurrection. Hope. Live and walk in the Spirit. Your children of a better covenant. Covenant of Jesus Christ. In Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for Jesus. We, we just, we want to sit in, in wonder and awe at the work that you have done, that you have orchestrated from, from the beginning that would bring Jesus to us, to the people God, we are so thankful that you have redeemed us. May we not look for hope and salvation and and righteousness in anything but Christ. God, may we live as Christ, even performing the signs of the kingdom that he did, feeding the poor, clothing the naked, loving the orphan and the widows. Your kingdom come. Amen.